Welcome to you today. I'm Paul Peppis, director of the Oregon Humanities Center. My guest today is Ursula Pike, author of the Indian, An Indian Among Los Indígenas, a native travel memoir published in 2021 by Heyday Books. Pike is executive director of grants and compliance at Austin Community College, where she also teaches creative writing. A member of uh, Northern California's Karuk tribe, Pike grew up in Daly City, California, Portland, and Washington State. She earned an MFA in creative nonfiction from the Institute of American Indian Arts, a master's degree in economics from Western Illinois University, and a BA in economics from Portland State University. Her writing has appeared in Lit Hub, Yellow Medicine Review, World Literature Today, and O Dark 30. On May 16, 2023, Pike gave a book talk at the Many Nations Longhouse on the U of O campus as a guest of the Native American and Indigenous Studies program. Thanks, Ursula, for coming on the show. It's great to have you with us. Thank you. I'm excited to talk about this. So first, tell us a bit about your background. What should we know about you? So I am Karuk, um, a member of the tribe from um, our homeland is near the Oregon-California border. And, uh, but I grew up all along the West Coast because my mom managed timber for various tribes, uh, Quinault, Yakima, and um, so we moved a lot throughout the Pacific Northwest. Um, and I became affiliated, or um, I met all of these native people from all these different tribes. And it was exciting and gave me a really unique understanding of indigenous identity. Um, but now I, I live in Austin and um, I teach creative writing and I work with a um, native community there through Great Promise for American Indians. We hold a powwow every year. So you, you just mentioned that you, know, you had this experience of learning because of where you lived, that is to say you didn't live in, in the, on the border with the Kirk tribe. You had exposure to many Indians from many different tribes. Um, so tell us why that, how that, that particular experience has shaped your understanding of indigeneity in the United States. Well, I, I just saw so much diversity in indigenous cultures. I mean, I saw diversity within my own tribe. You know, I, mm -hmm. I, there was our family um, that lived uh, in Daly City and uh, East Bay, and then we would go visit the family up in Happy Camp and Wairika and um, meet our relatives who lived there, um, people who were fluent in the language and we didn't, we weren't fluent in Karuk, but um, even though my grandmother had grown up speaking it, she didn't have anybody in Daly City to speak it. So we, we knew that, I knew that side of indigenous experience. But then I met all these people from all over um, who had varying degrees of experience, um, connections with their tribe, and it just showed me this incredible diversity of urban and res Indians and, um, and how people, you know, there were definitely tensions sometimes between those different communities, you know, asking who's, who's Indian enough, who's authentically indigenous, um, but it, it was a great experience for me to have. So what sparked your interest in becoming a writer? Well, I've always written as a way to just understand the world, um, specifically creative nonfiction, memoir writing. Uh, I have always gravitated to real stories. Um, I remember being in high school and reading um, Mary Crodog's uh, memoir, um, and 
just being really touched by seeing people's lives uh, displayed honestly. And I wanted to do that too. I always just wrote about my life as it really was. So you earned your MFA at the Institute of American Indian Arts. So tell us what's important or special about that program. That's really an incredible program and it changed me as a writer because the instructors there, there's primarily native instructors, primarily native students, um, and they really show us that you can write about anything as a native instructor, uh, as, an, as a native author. As a native author, you know, you often feel compelled to, I don't know, perform your culture or present it in a way that's easily digestible, but it's so complex. and. Um, and so it was just great to see published poets and authors talking about how the pressure that they felt, but then pushing back against that pressure to, to portray their life as someone else might think it has to be portrayed. Mm -hmm. That's really interesting. And that, that brings me to talking about the, the memoir, your memoir. Um, so your memoir chronicles your time in Bolivia as a Peace Corps volunteer. So before I start asking you any questions about it, would you mind reading us a passage? Yes, I would love to. So this is from chapter two, uh, and it's called Cochabamba. Bolivia was isolated, isolated by mountains and expanses of sparsely populated, rugged terrain. It was a landlocked country that lost access to the Pacific Ocean in 1904 after a war with Chile. In Bolivia, the Andes Mountains broke into two separate ranges and continued bumping along South America into Chile and Argentina. There were vistas of snow-capped mountains with tranquil llamas silently chewing in the foreground. But Bolivia also had mountains of jagged orange and slate jutting toward the sky. Centuries of wind and rain erosion had revealed layers of red and gray minerals. Roads were built around the treeless steep mountains because there was no going over them. In Potosí, the high-altitude, bone-chilling city whose silver deposits inspired the hot greed of Spaniards. The hard brown shape of Cesar Rico, literally rich mountain, could be seen from every narrow street and open plaza. Bolivia was also home to the world's largest salt flat, Salar de Uyuni, an expanse of horizon-skimming whiteness that stretched for mile after barren mile. An Aymara Indian story explained that the mountains surrounding the salt flat were once giants. One of the giants deserted his wife for another woman while his wife was breastfeeding their child. She cried and cried, and the tears mixed with the milk and ran down her chest in white streams, covering the vast area between them. When it was dry, the sun reflected off the salty whiteness. Light-skinned tourists were burned to a shade of pink, not unlike the flamingos that flocked there to mate every November. During the rainy season, a thin layer of water accumulated on the surface and turned the salt flat into a giant mirror that reflected the sky and erased the horizon. Tourists were drawn to the remoteness, to the myth of Bolivia's savage purity. It let them prove they were travelers and not tourists. Tourists ordered frozen blue drinks from the hotel bar. Travelers, by contrast, rode buses without shocks for 50 cents while suppressing their explosive diarrhea, proving their hardiness. What about the grandmother seated next to the traveler? She'd been riding the same bus for 20 years. 
The bus was luxurious compared to the back of the truck she had ridden the previous 20 years. Would she see a difference between a traveler and a tourist, or would she simply see a gringo riding through her country as though it were a roller coaster? So such a wonderful uh, passage and um, a wonderful way to, to get at your experiences. So first, what inspired you to become a Peace Corps volunteer? You know, I, I wanted to, uh, to provide some service to the world. Um, you know, my, as I said, my mother worked for the Bureau of Indian Affairs. Many of my aunties worked for Indian Health Service. There was definitely a culture of if you go and get your education, provide some service. Um, I also wanted to travel and, you know, graduating with student loans and limited resources. I didn't have many options, and so I, I applied. And um, I was, you know, in the Peace Corps, you don't get to choose where you go. And I was elated when they invited me to Bolivia, because I, I knew that Bolivia was a largely indigenous country. And so I was really excited to go and do what I could, serve. So um, you wrote this book many years after your time in Bolivia. So what? What made you decide to write it when you wrote it? Well, I knew that I had a different experience than the majority of the volunteers. Um, Peace Corps is overwhelmingly white, most of the volunteers and definitely most of the staff, except for some of the people in the country, um, are white. And I knew that my experience was different, and I came back looking for books that would help me understand it. Um, you know, I always use books as a way to help me understand the world. Um, and I didn't find any books that were like this. Um, I would sometimes find blog posts by African-American volunteers serving in Africa and just that weird experience that they were having. Um, but I didn't find any books, so um, I decided to write it. <laughs> so tell us first, when you, before you got there, when you knew that's where you were going and you were excited because it's the, it has the largest percentage of indigenous people of any country in, in Central and South America, um, how did you imagine the role you would play when you were there in the Peace Corps? What did you think you would do? I, well, first of all, I thought I would immediately connect with Bolivians. I thought that they would see me as indigenous and, um, and they would welcome me as an indigenous person based on my experience in college working with other uh, indigenous people from all across the country and then my experience growing up in the Pacific Northwest with different indigenous folks. But that's not what happened, you know, I got off a plane with um, mostly all white folks and um, and they just saw me as another indigenous, as another gringo. And, um, and so, and I, I didn't know what I would be doing in, in terms of work. Um, and then I was sent to work in a children's home. And at first I was like, why am I being sent to work with kids? Um, but ultimately I realized that was a great experience for me. So tell us about some of the projects you worked on when you were there. So we, uh, the Children's Center, so it was about 100 kids, most of them from the countryside uh, who lived in town so they could, at the center, so they could go to school. And they made their own bread. Twice a week they made their own bread. And um, so I worked with one of the teachers to um, make baked goods to sell at the market um, and just 
tried to um, teach them about, I don't know, some basic bookkeeping about how you, you start a business, how you look at what, what's already out there and, and then sell your product and then uh, what you do with the proceeds. And then also they had a charango workshop, which a charango is, in this town, it's a big deal. It's a little um, ten-stringed uh, instrument sort of like a ukulele and uh, they made them and so uh, that was another project that I was involved with helping sell those, helping manufacture those. So let's talk about the bakery first. So I know that from, from reading the, the book, um, you mentioned this teacher who helped you. And you, you also made clear that you, you were teaching these young women about bookkeeping, et cetera. You have, you have degrees in economics. But you needed to, to be taught in order to do this, and this woman who helped you. So tell us a little bit about the role that she played in this project for you, and, and also, in general, the role that these indigenous women played in your experience in Bolivia. Yeah, they uh, were very helpful to me. Uh, you know, from the very first day that I showed up there, they welcomed me. And they were kind of teasing me, uh, but I knew immediately that that was their, them accepting me and them um, connecting with me. And I was really grateful that I had this group of women um, to, to show me how to do some things, because really I couldn't do much of anything um, from washing my clothes the right way to, um, to running any of these business projects that I was supposed to be running. So yes, my friend, um, or she became my friend because she helped me, you know, and, and she was a teacher at the, this children's home, but she also supported her whole family, her kids, her mother, her brothers, and she worked on the weekends, but she made, she helped me out by coming to the center to help me figure out the recipes and help guide the kids. and. It really, uh, I was so impressed by what she was able to do for me, but I was also reminded that I was giving, I was getting as much as I was giving. I was being helped as much as I was helping. So I know that the, the women that you worked with or you knew and you met, they had a particular impact on you. Can you tell us one or two of the lessons that you learned from them? Well, um, I just know that one thing that, as I said, Betty, or my friend who um, helped me in the bakery, she supported so many people in her family. And it just reminded me of how much we are connected to our families and how when you look at trying to um, empower someone, there's so many connections that they have um, in their immediate family that we cannot assume that it's about just helping that person. It, it, it also made me realize my connection to my mother and my sister that, you know, the choices that I make, um, the things that benefit me also can benefit them, but um, it's, it's a connection that, that we all have that um, I think in such a individualistic society that that we live we, we always think about you know helping one person but really it's an entire network of people that 
that are being impacted by our interaction. Have you returned to Bolivia and have you maintained relationships with any of the people that you met yeah, there? Yeah, I have. I've gone back a couple times. Um, I went back in 2018 um, and stayed specifically with um, Teresa, the woman I talk about in the book. Um, she still lives in that town. She works outside of town and, and it was amazing to see how what had changed and what was the same but yeah we've stayed in touch through whatsapp and other things you know now we can stay in touch what were some of the things that have changed well one amazing thing um which is complicated but uh in 20 in 2006 bolivia elected their first indigenous leader evo morales and uh he got the schools to start teaching indigenous language. And um, he is no longer president. There's a lot of Bolivians who have problems with him, but I saw definite advances in um, pride, in indigeneity, and willingness to recognize um, that part of Bolivia's heritage and, and talk about it. So it, even though, like I said, there are people who, who disagree with with some things that he did, um, I saw those advances clearly. So it's clear from the book that your feelings about the Peace Corps are ambivalent. So first, what, what misgivings did you, do you have about the Peace Corps now that you've gone through this experience and reflected on it for these many years? Uh, the same misgiving that I discovered while I was there, this assumption that these folks need saving, that somebody outside the U.S. Um, automatically is worse off because they don't have what we have. And also the assumption that, that we've got the monopoly on what's right, the right way to live, the right way to exist, the right values to have. Um, that is something that, that I learned. Um, however, you know, I am frequently asked by Peace Corps recruiters to come and speak at their events. And I agree, but I say, I'm gonna be honest about my experience. Um, and they are happy to have me even um, with my honesty. And because I, I think that there are volunteers or people who are thinking about joining Peace Corps who have questions, who, who want to make sure that they're just not going and replicating some colonial idea of help and development and um, and so even though I have questions about it I do think that if you go into it with your eyes open then um, it can be it can be a great experience so you mentioned that you know some Peace Corps volunteers who are now against the Peace Corps they've turned against it but you you just made clear that you you will go talk what are some of the things that you valued in your experience there that you think that the Peace Corps does well I think the, the fact that, that we were able to figure things out on our own, as hard as it was, um, it really created some leadership opportunities. Uh, we were just kind of put out there in those communities and we had to, to figure it out for ourselves. But for me, the bigger issue is that the Peace Corps is often a pipeline to foreign service jobs, to uh, international development jobs. And as, um, as I've heard some former uh, international development workers say, um, the foreign service is typically pale male from Yale. And the, 
more, I just would love for more people of color, more pe people from diverse backgrounds to use the Peace Corps as a way to help to, to move into those fields, into those careers, because they also would benefit from increased diversity. So the, the subtitle of your book is A Native Travel Memoir. So how do you understand the significance of your intervention as a native writer into the genre of travel writing? Well, I grew up reading travel memoirs. I love them. They're exciting, but I never knew who to identify with. I, I remember reading articles where they're describing the beautiful native women and uh, how they, I don't know, it, it almost felt like they were describing inanimate objects. And I thought, now who am I supposed to identify with here? I don't identify with this guy. I don't identify with this portrayal of this indigenous person who is less than fully human. And so I wanted to write a book that talked about being in that space where you can understand and connected with the, the people in the country, but, um, but we're still an outsider. And that, that, that's one of the most striking things about this book is that uh, commitment to being honest about the kind of complexities that you experienced and that you, what you learned while you were there. It's, it's such an honest memoir. It's really fa fascinating in that regard. So let's talk a little more generally about some of the other things that you've done. So first of all, how, does, how do you understand that your Karuk background informs your writing? Do you think that it does? I don't know if my specific Karuk background does. I, you know, California natives have such a, a unique um, experience as indigenous people. I mean, I can still go to the communities where are to the center of our universe, center of our world. Um, and we were not, um, s many of our communities were moved out of their specific community, but that general area in Northern California um, is still accessible to us and becoming slowly more accessible each year. And um, so I understand a connection to the land in a way that I think is unique um, to especially California tribes, Oregon tribes, and Washington, people who, who are still near their land. And I think that informs my understanding of how other people are connected to their land. So maybe in that way. But I also think that my, under, my perception of indigenous identity, the, the diversity of it, um, helps me understand my connection and also some of my lack of connection to indigenous people outside of my tribe, outside of um, this country. Huh, that's, that's really, really interesting. So, um, I mean, obviously writing is a way to bridge those kinds of gaps. So let's talk a little bit more about your role. So you're an administrator at Austin Community College, but you're also a teacher there and you teach creative nonfiction. So tell us, how do you approach doing that? How do you, how do, you do that? I really like to break it down and demystify the writing process. I, I, so many of my students have maybe written before, but most of them have never published before, or some of them are new to writing. And I really like to show them that it can be a, a process, that it's a craft, that there are steps that you can follow um, to get to a final polished draft and to not 
think that it requires some inspiration that you have, some epiphany that you have to have to produce something good. You know, I tell them some of the best writers I know are the people who get up at five o'clock every morning and write for two hours and that may be not great what they turn out in the first two hours, but they just, they know that that commitment to just working and writing and revising, that's how you get the best stuff. <laughs> that's interesting. So um, are you working on any writing projects now that you'd like to tell us about? Yeah, uh, after I was in Peace Corps and then came back, went to uh, graduate school, I moved to Mississippi and I did not realize there was a huge native population in Mississippi as well. Um, I lived in Philadelphia, Mississippi, where the Mississippi Band of the Choctaws are, and um, and I ended up pregnant and had no insurance, and they welcomed me. They they gave me all the support that I needed, and I just I, I'm writing about that experience of being a native woman, but not from the Mississippi. Uh, Choctaws, but just that experience of living there and seeing a Mississippi that was unlike anything I had expected. Why did you go to Mississippi? Why was that the, the place you landed? Oh, for love. Okay, okay. <laughs> that's, that's, okay. Um, so, uh, you, you, one of the things you do, and you mentioned it, is you volunteer uh, with the annual Austin Powwow. So, tell us a little bit about your work doing that. Yeah, uh, Austin and Central Texas in general has a pretty large native population. I mean, a lot of people move there for the reason anybody moved, for job, for love, for whatever. And, um, and so there's people from tribes all over the country who live there. And um, folks have, for years, have been putting on this powwow. And um, I've been involved just for the few years, the you know, 15 or so years that I've lived there. Um, and they bring in folks from all over the country. And, um, and it's great because many people who are there um, are not necessarily connected to their tribal traditions. And so it's, it's like creating new tribal traditions for a lot of people. And for me also it was important to show, to connect my children um, growing up in Austin to the native community, to a native community. And nobody really knew about our tribe, but um, my kids were able to understand their place in a native environment because of them. So Ursula, we're just about at the end of our time. This will be my last question. So have you read anything recently, any books that you've read recently that you would recommend? Well, uh, there's a book I love. Tony Jensen has a book called Carrie. Um, and she's a Métis writer. She's an instructor at IAIA. And um, it is a series of essays about living um, in the South and the West and um, exploring native identity, violence, and, and gun culture. And I, I think it's really fascinating because um, she brings her uh, indigenous perspective to gun culture and um, and to violence and I, it, it's really beautiful and I, I always recommend it to people. Well, thank you for that recommendation. Thank you for taking the time to speak with us today. It's been great talking to you and learning more about your book. Thank you, this is a wonderful opportunity. I've been speaking with Ursula Pike, author of An Indian Among Los Indígenas, a, travel, a native travel memoir on May 16th, 2023. 
She gave a book talk at the Many Nations Longhouse on the U of O campus as a guest of the Native American and Indigenous Studies program. Thanks so much for watching.